Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Cloud Spotting Podcast, a new monthly podcast powered by Rackspace. So what can you expect from the show? From security to performance, DevOps to databases, cloud to on-premises, we plan to discuss architecting and operating solutions with the subject matter experts across a wide variety of platforms and technologies. Weather permitting, we'll be publishing the results to your favorite podcatcher on the first Thursday of every month. I suppose I should probably introduce myself. I'm Alex Galbraith, a solution architect at Rackspace with 15 long years experience in the IT industry from engineer to architect. And co-hosting the show with me is my colleague and favorite office nerf target, Sai. Thanks, Alex. Hello, my name is Sai Iyer. Well, just to add to Alex, I've got 15 years of experience as well. Installing. Not a competition. It is. <laughs> uh, I have experience installing servers and defending myself from Alex's nerf darts. <laughs> so if you uh, want to follow us on the social awesomeness that is Twitter, you can catch me at Alex Galbraith. And me at Sai underscore Racker. Or tweet us using, using the hashtag spotting clouds. We would have liked cloud spotting. But it seems that people who like Cumulus and Nimbus, not AWS and Azure, have gotten to that one before us. <laughs> and to introduce our first guest uh, for, our, for, for our podcast episode, we have Will Parsons, who is a technical expert here at Rackspace. Will, why don't you tell us something about yourself? Yes, so my name is Will Parsons. Uh, I am a lead engineer with enterprise segment of Rackspace Service Delivery. So I've been a sysadmin for the better part of 10 years. Uh, specializing in e-commerce applications in, in the last few. And uh, so now my role is really working with service delivery, support teams. I end up getting involved in architecture and scaling, so I work with these two gents quite a lot. So, Will, one of the things, one of the reasons that we brought you on the show today was because we want to go into the, the ins and outs of, of, uh, of scaling applications, particularly for these peak periods. Now, um, to some people, it may seem a little bit strange that we're deciding to do this in January as our peak period was Christmas and or Black Friday and we've now gone past it. Um, I guess the first thing that we want to start thinking about is actually it's not planning for last year, it's planning for next year. So how soon do customers typically start planning and how soon do we recommend they start planning and is there a difference? Good question. Well, the earlier the better, really, um, as always. Um, you know, if it's if it's November and you're wondering about it, then then that's too late. So um, it's really a lot of the time people are doing this planning in Q2, um, getting changes done over the summer, managing summer holidays, uh, really with a view to getting the right platform in place, the right uh, scale of platform in place. Um, October should pretty much be when you're stopping work and, and should have that period of stability before everything uh, really kicks off. It must be quite a challenge though for, for customers who, you know, in a, in a modern world where we talk about things like um, automation, CI/CD pipelines, agile development, and, you know, that kind of seems to almost butt up against the idea that really we want to have a stable environment with a, at least a couple of months to go until, until your Christmas period. What do you typically see from customers around that? Well, I think Depends what you mean by stable platform, I suppose. Um, the the if you if you've got a good CI/CD pipeline, that's excellent, uh, and that's uh, wants to be in full flow, as it were, and and working on that. You probably still do want a change freeze on the actual Christmas period, but even then, you know, you might well want to react to a deal that a competitor's doing, or, and mm -hmm. and be able to be able to make changes in maybe in pricing. 
maybe in the products you're offering, maybe the deals you're offering. So some of that might fall within normal content management, which I would consider just normal operations. Yep. Um, you probably don't want to be still busy replatforming. You probably want to have your your uh, platform, even if it's dynamic, ready and in a state where uh, where you're not changing the the nature of it. So you're implying that doing a cloud migration in October <laughs> would not be a great idea. <laughs> um, not if you can help it. No. <laughs> I mean, doing your cloud migration in the summer, ready for October, is is definitely going to be a good idea. Sounds a lot more sensible. Perfect. So that makes sense. Obviously, there's a huge question of load testing that comes into play because obviously for any large event, especially things like Black Friday or, or Christmas periods, you've got to bear about the key things. So how do you do, what do you keep in mind when you do load testing and application testing, especially when you're doing it in summer, so out of the peak periods? So yeah, it's, load testing is hard because um, I think the hardest thing is to have a, a machine send the same traffic profile that, that looks exactly like um, normal browsing. So things like what your conversion percentages are. Um, if you have good analytics on the, the path that your users take through your website, absolutely use that to build up those profiles. Um, the other thing is um, something really simple like human think times. Right. You might have a page up for 10 or 20 seconds before you click on the next thing. Um, you might have analytics around that, how long people linger on each page. And that's the kind of thing that if you get that wrong in your load test, then you might have five or ten times the amount of traffic coming in than, than, you, than you think. Uh, so load tests can sometimes completely overwhelm your, your servers or, or services because you haven't planned in the fact that humans actually pause and wait and read stuff. They don't just go click, 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 <laughs> which is typically what a load test might do. So it's really uh, planning that, making sure that the, the traffic profile looks as close to realistic as possible. And that's difficult. Right? Perfect. So how do you sort of uh, deal with concepts like, uh, you know, like not checking your own homework, so getting someone else to do load testing or, or using tools? Uh, I, know, I know Alex knows one. Alex is famous. Yeah, my favorite. This is just for, purely for the name. I, I've actually I've seen a couple of customers using using it, but it's called uh, Bees with Machine Guns, and uh, what it basically does is spins up a bunch of tiny EC2 instances on Amazon, um, and then throws whatever your synthetic transactions are at your site, um, and then obviously because that's coming from multiple different sources, and you're able to scale up to effectively whatever you need to be able to throw sufficient traffic at your site to, to load or actually I suppose that, that brings up an interesting point can you talk about because I, I hadn't actually heard this term until a few years ago the difference between load testing and stress testing so stress testing is, as far as I understand is is when you you know that this is more than your normal profile and you really want to break the site and you really want to uh, see where the cracks start to appear and that's good actually often as a result of a load test that's what ends up happening mm -hmm. um, so usually you want to do it on uh, infrastructure that is dev but but a similar scale or maybe on your live infrastructure because not everyone has that ability but out of hours yeah uh, and then yeah so you're really seeing when it breaks uh, because that's uh, can be a massive big laser focus point on where you spend your dev resources. Yeah, absolutely. So fi finding the edges of the box, really. Um, because, I mean, what, I'll give you an example. One of our customers, 
um, that I've been working with of late has, uh, has a platform which takes a really significant load, even under normal circumstances. Um, but due to some of the things that have been going on in the world of late, um, their platform is seeing, on a daily basis, record numbers of uh, users accessing their site. Um, and it's it's been really interesting for them and for us as a challenge as a uh, you know as a customer who is running within a within a relatively traditional virtualized environment to continue to scale that platform and constantly meet what is effectively an ongoing load and or stress test on a daily basis. Yeah, so it's um, kind of a good problem to have uh, in terms of business growth. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's that's when you really need to think about are you constraining your infrastructure with with a physical bit of metal and does that need to be on a cloud? Does that need to burst out? Absolutely. And obviously, let's not forget, load testing doesn't just mean hitting your CPU and hitting your memory with more tests. It also means application-level load testing. So you've got to think about your web sockets. You have to think about your databases. You have to think about transactions going in and out. Uh, and obviously, there are, there are tools that do it. There are, there are things that we can work with it. And the more important is you have to look at it from an end-to-end -end perspective. Um, so, Will, in your experience, you've had discussions with customers who've done this process. How many of them have actually gone through each step and actually made it successful? And, how, and sort of what sort of issues do you see them hitting it? What's, your, what's the major roadblock? That's a good question. Um, I suppose varying success. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, sometimes it can be uh, something as simple as one database query that is fine most of the time, but suddenly when you've got 50 times the traffic, uh, the lock that it causes uh, is too long and, and right. you end up getting some kind of database deadlock. That's probably the worst case scenario. That's really. like uh, using an example of something like Magento there. We have a huge number of Magento customers and I know that varying by what kind of code you've actually written, you can get massively different kind of levels of performance and scalability out of the same amount of infrastructure with a, with a single application. Very much so. Well, Magento, the reason it's popular and the reason it's uh, very useful is because it's so extendable. Mm -hmm. um, but that can also always be a double-edged sword because uh, <laughs> it depends what modules have been written, how well they've been written, uh, and how many that you might have that may end up competing with each other. Yeah. So, yeah, that's always a thing. Um, Magento out of the box is, is perfectly fast. Um, yep. Magento 2, actually, one of the major changes in the Enterprise Edition is uh, the back-end database is separated to, right. to three. So you've got one that does the, the checkout stuff, one that does the order management, uh, and one that's sort of products. Uh, so uh, a lot of the locks that you had in Magento 1 branch um, are now worked around because they they're not they don't have those dependencies on each other. Mm -hmm. And can um, you then scale those databases independently for yes, really large can. scale platforms? You can yeah. So you could have three individual uh, instances of MySQL or RDS or whatever, right. uh, and each of those you could scale out as, that's, as needed. That's a really interesting point that you made there as well, though, because um, I mean one of the things about scaling we talk about scaling horizontally to mm. meet um, application demand, and that's fine up to a point. But eventually, you reach a point of saturation on your databases where, in actual fact, you can't auto-scale vertically very easily, or certainly True. not without downtime. Um, so, you know, we talk about having these amazing auto-scale platforms, but you still do have to have a level of intelligence to make sure that you design for peak as, as when it comes to right. things which can't scale horizontally. 
yeah, databases are probably one of the most difficult things there. I mean, you, you can scale them, especially if you're using something like RDS or Aurora. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you just need to plan to make those instances bigger. Take yep. some take some plan downtime to do that for an hour uh, overnight, and then you've suddenly got you know two or four times the capacity for that big period. And then when when you're done, you can scale it back down again. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's difficult to do that automatically. I yeah. don't think I've seen anyone auto scaling a database layer. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's really it's, difficult. It's particularly beneficial, I guess, with uh, if you if you have a, a a workload, particularly for say a peak workload where it's quite read intensive. Um, actually, you've got a lot more options to scale. Particularly if you're using things like MySQL databases, you could have read replicas and then use something like a, a MySQL proxy to send your reads to your read replicas and then your writes to your primary database. And as then, as long as your writable database isn't being completely overwhelmed, then actually you've got a, a pretty scalable platform at that point. Yeah, and it's a good point too because you could scale out the read databases. You could scale out multiple slaves. So you, you mm. can. I mean, as long as your application's happy with dirty reads. You can even even you can even reduce the actual sync timer between them. To, yeah, to as long as load. the application is aware of that and you, yeah. you you know you're hitting the right database at the right time, uh, you can Perfect. definitely do that. I know, guys. We're talking about all oh, lots of cloud technologies here. Uh, we're talking about RDS, Magento. That's fantastic. But let's assume we have a solution that's actually not yet on the cloud. Um, we have a solution that needs to go on the cloud. Uh, Auto scaling is is and load balancing or meeting requirements from a from a peak period is important, but I we also look at a concept called cloud readiness assessment. Obviously, the, the application needs to be able to run in the cloud. So, well, from your experience, customers who come across from a on-prem to cloud infrastructure or running solutions on-prem, maybe not standard solutions like Magento or Hybris, but more homegrown. How important is cloud readiness assessment? How important is to make sure that it actually can run in the cloud? It's really important, really. So uh, one of the things that I tend to see, especially, so if you compare um, the traditional model of dedicated servers, maybe VMs, but still very much uh, dedicated machines, mm -hmm. compared to cloud estates, which are a bunch of cattle rather than a pet that you care about. Kitten. Yeah, so what you typically find is, when an application is, is developed and has grown on a, on a bunch of dedicated servers, you tend to get configs that have evolved over time. Oh, this didn't work, so we'll put this Apache mm -hmm. here. Oh, we, we needed to add some other feature, so we'll add inject a header here and, and, and have some other config that deals with that. And you can end up with these quite big sort of snowflake mm -hmm. configs um, that in themselves can then be hard to translate into cloud. So you end yep. up with things like hard-coded IP addresses lying around, oh, yeah. those files, or in code. A thousand um, URL rewrites on your load balancer. <laughs> yeah, um, it just happens as, as things evolve, you know. It's yep. just, it's just well. And then you, you translate that into a, a cloud environment where you ideally you want it to be a nice clean slate. You want to be able to spin up servers out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. uh, you want to be able to deploy quickly, uh, efficiently. Uh, and, and a lot of the time you really have to just adopt different models of doing that. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what would you deem as being an application which is appropriate for cloud versus perhaps one that maybe should be, uh, shall we politely say, refactored in place before you actually then make that you know, initial jump out to the cloud? So things like anything that relies on local persistent storage, um, that's always a problem because cloud servers 
generally you want to treat as very ephemeral. Yes, um, so right. state is always... Yeah, you're not storing any data there. Um, so let's say all of your product media is, uh, rather than using a local folder on a local disk, you might have got around that and dedicated with things like NFS. Yes, there are cloud services that do that, but really for best results at scale, what you want to be doing is working directly with object storage. Perfect. Yep, absolutely. And obviously config management, when you start looking at using cloud-based applications, cloud config management is very important. Definitely. There's different ways to go about that. You can just bake things into an image and use that. Um, it's nicer to do config management. Sometimes it can actually take longer to, for Chef to actually go in and run on a server than it can be to just spin up a maybe like a silver image, which has got all of your config, but then mm -hmm. then you deploy the latest code on top of that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if we want to talk too much about containerization <laughs> in this podcast, but uh, but that's the thing as well, because that can be it can allow you to very quickly deploy a very known state of config. That's perfect. I'd say hold that thought, Will. We'll get back to that. <laughs> well, I think one of, the, one of the ones that's really jumped out at me as well um, with applications which are maybe not quite ready for the cloud is, or one of the challenges that you have when it comes to deciding to go to the cloud is what is supported by the vendor that you're currently using in terms of that application. So if you're buying a piece of off-the-shelf uh, mm -hmm. application software um, to run your e-commerce site or whatever it happens to be, um, if they are not ready to go to the cloud, then that's it. You know, it's kind of the game over almost um, for that migration, um, and you are you are left with a, either the responsibility of taking that application to the cloud, regardless, um, and taking the risks associated, um, or potentially looking to either replatform to a different vendor, or finally, if you're if you're say running something in house where you've actually developed it from the ground up, then you've got a lot more flexibility there to be able to refactor your own application, yep. albeit with a, with a significant amount of redevelopment work. Although that's another interesting one as well, because one of the things that you mentioned containers there, yep. um, looking at uh, refactoring applications into, say, microservices is, a, is another really common thing that we hear customers starting to talk about. Now. Um, and one of the things I've seen with that is some customers take the route of wanting to rewrite their entire application from the ground up, if but they that have could the take time. them you yeah. know, a year or two, <laughs> at which point you might not even have the product that you wanted at the start of that year or two. Absolutely. Whereas other customers might start to look at redeploying elements of an application. I mean, do you, have you seen many customers starting to do things like hybrid cloud models? Uh, yes and no, I suppose. Um, I think it's, if you are already in a cloud, mm -hmm. it's much easier to do that. So you can break down some elements, things like queuing, um, breaking down the order of things and, and having a message queue. Mm -hmm. If you happen to already be in AWS, for example, you can start to use a queuing service just because it's there and it's very scalable. Uh, if, if you're not, I mean, a lot of, uh, quite a few of my customers actually are doing um, just running Rabbit on either VMs or cloud servers that are connected in a hybrid sort of way. Right, okay, so running running kind of the front, some of those front end services within a cloud platform, but they still have the back-end processing and ERP and those types of systems still running on a more traditional system. Yeah, that's that's very common in what I do now, because uh, I mainly um, have been looking after dedicated platforms. But almost all of the customers I look after are doing something in a cloud, whether it's a little bit of front-end, maybe it's just using CDNs for caching. Um, there, there's usually some element of 
of cloud in there. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just really how it all fits together, how it connects together. That's I suppose that's the the interesting part. Which <laughs> <laughs> makes sense. Which makes sense. So I know we talked about load balancing, we talked about assessments, we talked about meeting the requirements of the peak periods. There is a massive buzzword, or, or I would like to say a very important term in, in cloud, and especially during peak periods, auto-scaling. Uh, the concept sounds very straightforward. Hey, when you need to scale, you scale, you add more nodes. <laughs> but the, the implementation can be very tricky. Uh, in your sort of experience, Will, when we talk about auto-scaling, when a customer talks about auto-scaling, how many of them actually have done this successfully? How many of them have gone through the steps to make sure auto-scaling works? And what do you think would be the main bottleneck that a lot of people face? So a, a few of them do it, do it pretty successfully. Um, uh, but again, it, I, I think it comes back to a lot of the cloud readiness things. So uh, having code which can be deployed very easily and quickly, having images that are, are ready, making sure your database layer isn't going to completely choke if you suddenly have 10 times the, the web layer. So these things all fit together, I think. Um, if you've got a good pipeline, if you know that you can deploy resources uh, mm -hmm. very quickly and easily, and if you have the right triggers and analytics in place, when do you scale up? When do you scale down? Uh, so sometimes it's actually more of a manual thing, um, and sometimes people do rely on automation to do that. So. Again, there's a few different ways of doing it. Uh, it can be successful, but mm -hmm. um, you've definitely got to test it as well. I'd, once you've got that in place, use your bees with machine guns <laughs> and, and, and see that your uh, see that your your estate does scale as you expect it to, because it's all there's seems to be a bit of a difference between what happens in theory and what happens in practice. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. As a concept that does make more sense and we, we've seen more than often customers come to us to expect the infrastructure to auto scale for them and uh, there's been numerous times I, I know Alex can agree as well there's numerous times we've gone back to customers saying that's not exactly how auto scale works it's magic <laughs> it's, it is magic it's uh, the cloud unicorn isn't it <laughs> But there's a lot of dependencies on the application to actually meet those scaling requirements. Um, I take this opportunity. Thank you very much, Will. You've, uh, you've helped us a lot, and I'm hoping our listeners would uh, get a lot of information out of this as well. Uh, just going talking forward, um, Alex, we, we talked about auto-scaling. We talked about um, stuff to meet in the peak requirements. And, and briefly, Will talked about containers and microservices. Let's, let's loop back to that. Um, as part of this podcast, as part of our podcast, uh, we we plan to cover a few topics apart from the main topic. We want to talk about what's new in the world of IT, what's new in cloud technology, uh, and sort of what we come across um, from our customers to sort of help them find out what's new in the world and how to tune their solutions to meet, I wouldn't say stay bleeding edge, but, but reasonably uh, latest and reasonably up to date. Yeah, so the difference between being on the bleeding edge and getting cut on the bleeding edge. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to bleed on the bleeding edge. <laughs> uh, so I think this week, um, and this month rather, uh, we want to talk about um, containers, actually. We've had uh, quite a few communications, quite a few discussions uh, with customers uh, internally. We, there's a lot of talk about uh, Docker and 
Kubernetes. And I, th- I thought we we should go a bit more deeper into this and, and let everyone know what ex- actually we're facing. So, Alex, do you want to quickly talk about uh, what you see in terms of the adoption of Kubernetes? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a really fascinating subject for me personally. Um, I've been reading a fair bit about Kubernetes of late. Um, what I think is the most interesting bit is that, you know, this is, okay, it's a mature technology from Google's perspective, but from the, the mass market, it's actually very, very new. It's only about two, three years old mm-hmm. uh, since it was released, I think, somewhere, what was it, 2014 or something? Yeah, that's right. Um, and they came into the market where, with Docker already having a lot of the, a lot of the noise, a lot of the hype. Um, at that point, we had people like Mesosphere yep. and um, Docker Swarm and so forth doing the orchestration piece, which for anybody who hasn't done much with containers as yet, um, I kind of always describe it as almost like the, the vCenter of containers. You know, It's a simple platform on which you can orchestrate containers and you can use um, an API to do that. Now, um, one of the things that I think is most interesting though is not only is this a brand new product, but the rate at which it has been brought on or mm. adopted by the community at large, it's actually, it's literally hockey-sticked. And within the last 12 months, you've gone from organizations like Docker, uh, VMware, Amazon, Azure, etc., all providing uh, container orchestration services based on Kubernetes. So even do- as Docker themselves have a product called Docker Enterprise, which is yep. effectively fully supported Docker. Um, and even they've kind of almost given up the ghost, I would say, um, and said it used to be Docker Swarm was the one and only way that you could do things. And now they're saying, what about Docker Enterprise supporting Kubernetes? So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting space. I'm certainly seeing a lot of customers starting to ask about it. We've, we've actually, we're rolling out a managed Kubernetes service uh, within our environments as well. Um, I mean, what about yourself? What are customers asking you about? What are they actually doing with it typically? A lot of times it's it's talking about how to use Kubernetes in their environment, how to use containers. Uh, I generally tend to loop back to our customers and try and understand and probably explain to them exactly what is containers because there, there is a, a, a huge spectrum of products in between a, a application, monolithic application or a distributed application to containers. You're talking about... Um, you're talking about service-oriented architecture to start with. Has is your application broken down in, into small pieces that can run independently and talk to each other? Have you talked about microservices rather than depending on a single monolithic block? Have yep. you thought about breaking it down into small services that they can run independently? And above all, if if your developer resource is in one office in one building in single time zone. How helpful is containers going to be from a dev perspective? Are you trying to put a square block in a round hole? Uh, <laughs> so th- there's a lot of things that I talk to my customers about before sort of jumping into the Kubernetes uh, side mm. of things. And um, well, obviously, Alex and I have been talking about Kubernetes and containers. Do you, do you see a lot of customers coming to you with Kubernetes as a requirement or moving to Kubernetes? Whenever people are asking about, you know, can we move this to the cloud? Can we do this? Everyone is talking about it. It, it is, yeah, it's it is definitely the there. Um, so, you know, we're looking at how we can support these. Um, what is one of the ways that you can start to move from a, a dedicated space into a cloud space is start to use containers. You can just use Docker or whatever on, on dedicated hosts, and then you've got that ready, and then you can burst that into the cloud. Perfect, perfect. One of the things as well is, Containers and microservices are not ne- 
necessarily one and the same. No, definitely so you, not. You can you can have one without the other. I think um, people immediately when they think microservices think containers, and that's the only way to go. But that all of a sudden means that your developer is now responsible for managing your infrastructure and security from within an operating system, which actually might not be something that they're ideally suited to or even interested in doing. So one other option, which I've seen actually is when we start talking about microservices architecture with customers is why are you going to containers in the first place? Yep. And if the answer is because we want to be able to do a microservices architecture and split the application up, then there are many other ways to do it. So for example, you could go down the route of PaaS, so if all you really care about is running your code, why don't you just run your code within a PaaS environment and not care about the operating system at all? Um, alternatively, um, what, what is it that the code itself is actually doing? Is it doing something on an event-driven basis, in which case actually maybe you want to start looking at things like AWS Lambda, for instance, and doing service computing. So um, I would say that my, my recommendation to anybody who's starting down this road is actually look at what it is that you're trying to achieve and is containers the right way to, to go about that? Absolutely. Perfect. Uh, another thing that we come across very recently is containers with uh, blockchain technology and cryptocurrency. So it seems like it's going down a different path than we expected. Yeah, that one really surprises me because how much uh, the amount of compute power that you require for yep. doing things like blockchain and even just generating of you know cryptocurrencies and stuff like that, it almost feels like containers is the wrong thing. It, it feels like you just need well, I mean, it's a bit like these uh, you know these massive big Chinese Bitcoin mining farms. You know, they have the, exactly. the cheapest possible bit of kit that you can get and just have many many of them, um, and then just scale it on traditional kit. Yeah. It's almost like the old school traditional server is the way to go for some workloads these days. Absolutely, I think I think it's compromised uh, PCs yeah. around the world. Oh yeah, God, <laughs> so you don't do that. Things at the moment, it's not so much uh, malware and, and ID theft. And it's Bitcoin yeah, mining using yeah. using people's compromised PCs for Bitcoin mining has mm. massively <laughs> uh, increased. Or JavaScript hijacks in browsers where well, I say hijacks. Oh, yes, yeah, so there's a, a lot of people using that as. Um, revenue generators for websites so they'll put a bit of javascript into the browser and you're like you access a particular website and you're like why is my cpu running at 100 <laughs> <laughs> percent yeah why um so that's a good point I, uh, it is obviously kubernetes and containers have led to a dot uh, and i think we want to wrap this up uh, we'll talk about kubernetes a lot more in detail as we go through uh but i just want to say definitely i want to resonate the point that alex mentioned yes you there are options, there are alternatives. Focus on what's the end requirement as opposed to what the product is. Absolutely. So thank you very much, Will, for being our guest today. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks very much. So final point, um, Alex, and before we go into, so if you, if you plan to move to a microservices architecture uh, and you want to do it at any kind of pace or scale, you want to ensure that you automate all the things. Um, we'll also be running a series of webinars in parallel to this podcast, with the first one covering automation, CI/CD pipelines, etc. Later this month, our special guest will be Iskander Naimuddin. Um, I hope I spelled that right. Um, who's a Rackspace DevOps guru, um, and uh, he is absolutely amazing. He is indeed. He's yes. top. He, he's top. Uh, well, he, he's uh noted in society for his exclusive DevOps skills. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so you, you can sign up. Uh, the details for it will be in the podcast uh, notes in the description. And um, yeah, and in case if you're currently on the road and want to avoid steering with your knees while writing this link down, 
we will make sure we include it and we put it in all the details. So we hope you've enjoyed the first episode. Just as a quick reminder, you can catch this and future episodes on the first Thursday of every month from now until we run out of content. Which is never, because we don't, <laughs> we never stop talking. Uh, for our next episode, we have a very special guest coming in to talk about security with a focus on phishing attacks, maybe shark attacks, maybe not. <laughs> so if you've enjoyed the show, tweet us using the hashtag SpottingClouds. Give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher and let us know if there are any topics you'd like us to cover in the future. Until next time. Until next time. <laughs>